So this morning we're continuing in our sermon series, working our way through the fruit of the Spirit over the next few weeks. The fruit of the Spirit is found in Galatians 5, verse 22, where we, and 23, where the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. And so we, as we are going through the fruit of the Spirit over the, the, the next few weeks, each week we're taking one of these fruit of the Spirits, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, and today we're looking at peace. We're looking at peace, and we're going to be looking at peace Camping out in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 22. And so I invite you to open up your Bibles to that passage, open up your worship guides, or look at the wall behind me. But this is Ephesians 2, verses 12 through 22. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's word that he has given to us in love so that we would know him. Remember that you were, at that time, separated from Christ. Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we pray that in the next few moments, your, your spirit would be working your heart into our lives because you tell us in your word that your word does not return empty, that you are always working in our hearts whenever your word goes. And Father, we pray that you would shape us by your word, that we would know you, and that we become more like your son, Jesus Christ. In, in his name we pray, amen. On Easter morning, the day that Jesus was The day that Jesus rose from the dead, on Easter morning, Jesus' disciples were in a room. They were confused. They were confused because they they knew that their friend, Jesus, died upon the cross. They saw him beaten. They saw him, his hands pierced by nails onto the cross. So they, so they, they were grieving, and yet they were confused. They were surprised because now they're having reports that his tomb is empty. That they were hearing this, this news that his tomb was empty. And so this, what were they to make with this? 
because not only were they confused, some of them were very sad, like Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Even John, as we look through the as we saw in the Gospel of John, John was the apostle whom Jesus loved. John abandoned him. That John, the one whom Jesus loved, abandoned Jesus. So there, there's all this sorrow and sadness and grief, and yet this tomb is empty. They are anxious. They are confused, surprised. They're even bickering with one another. And so what happens next in that moment as this, the disciples are in this room? This is John's gospel. Boom, Jesus shows up. And so as Jesus shows up, the next few words are very important. Because if you, just as you try to put yourself in their shoes of what you would feel, you'd be shocked, you would truly be surprised, perhaps you would even scream as, because you were surprised. But Jesus says, peace be with you. Peace be with you. Friends, these are gospel words. These are words that Jesus said over and over again. It was a common greeting, in fact, for, the, for that time period of peace be with you. But it's even something that we see Jesus saying in the Last Supper in John 14, 27. Peace I, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So these are gospel words to us because it helps us understand something about who we are. That we are people of peace, but we are people of peace because of Jesus. And so as we think about peace this morning, we're going to be considering what, what is peace, defining peace first, considering fake peace, but then also considering uh, cultivating peace. And so the first thing that we see in defining peace, Jesus is our peace. This is Ephesians 2, verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is our peace. And so as we begin to think about peace, first let's ask the question of what is peace? First, let's ask what is peace? Because peace, biblically speaking, is a very big idea. It's a very big idea, and there's a lot of meaning caught up within this one word. In the Hebrew, the word peace is actually shalom. It means wholeness, renewal, prosperity, thriving, and much more. And as the prophets unpack what shalom looks like, we see lions and lambs lying next to one another. The same prophets will continue, and we see weapons turned into plows. So we see tanks become tractors. That's a picture of this piece of shalom within the prophets. And so as we look at our world all around us, our world is sinful. Our world is broken. There are wars always going on. Wars are always going on. There are conflicts. There are estranged relationships. That if you think over the past few days, how many times have you had moments of tension or conflict even within your own home? And so what is peace? What is peace? See, peace as a definition, peace is not just the absence of broken things. 
That's an important part of peace. Peace is not, the abs- is not just the absence of broken things, but peace is also wholeness. The presence of things as they should be, as God intended them. Peace is both of these things. Peace is not just the absence of broken things, but of wholeness. The presence of things as they should be, as God intended them. And so as followers of Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's going directly at to, to John 14, we are called to live in peace. But before we can even think what it looks like for us to live in peace, we need to think about how such peace is even possible. And because Paul is giving us a picture here in Ephesians 2.14 that Jesus is our peace. This entire passage from Ephesians, there's peace mentioned multiple times. But this peace is always going back to Jesus, as to who he is and what he has done. So Jesus is our peace. And as we think about peace even further, we're going to be thinking about peace in two very specific ways. Peace with God and also the peace of God. And both are due because of Jesus. And so as we think about peace with God, Jesus is our peace. Ephesians here is very, very clear. In fact, all of Scripture is very clear. There's a fundamental truth about Scripture that we are sinners. And because of our sin, we are alienated with God. And that alienation is because we are rebels against God. That in our sin, that we would curse God. That we would attack God. That we want nothing to do with Him. In fact, that we would kill God if we got the chance. That's the truth of Scripture. Romans 3 says it very clearly as well. No one understands. No one seeks God. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so in our sinfulness, we have no peace. In our sinfulness, we cannot know peace either. And there's a, because there's a link between being alienated with God and not having peace. You cannot know peace if you do not know God. And this makes sense then that Jesus is our peace. Because what does Jesus do for us? Jesus actually reconciles us to God so that we can know him. Our God is a God of peace. In him, this is Philippians 4, in him we have a peace that surpasses all understanding. And so this peace that God brings us only happens because Jesus has actually secured peace with God for us. And so Paul is pointing our hearts to Jesus here. He's telling us to consider who Jesus is. He's considering, telling us to consider what Jesus has done for us upon the cross. Jesus de- dealt with our hostility towards God at Calvary. And you see, think about this for a moment, what Jesus did for us upon the cross. It was upon the cross that Jesus suffered the violence of God's wrath on our behalf. But it was also upon the cross that Jesus endured the suffering of humanity's violence against God. 
upon the cross, both of those two things are true. And Jesus reconciled us to God. Jesus endured the suffering and the, the punishment that we deserved so that you and I would have peace with God, so that you and I would be reconciled to God. See, God made peace with you, not by ignoring your suffering. God made peace with you, not by pretending your suffering did not exist. God made peace with you by actually taking our sinfulness seriously and entering into our lives. And what happened is that God died upon the cross. No other God, no other system of religion, no other faith does this. Christianity is unique here. Because when God humiliated himself by taking on the form of a servant and enduring suffering, what Jesus goes to do is defeat our greatest enemies of sin and death and evil. So Russ Whitfield, a Presbyterian pastor in D.C., said this, that we are able to rest in peace because Jesus has risen in power. We are able to rest in peace because Jesus rose in power. So just very briefly, the opposite of this type of peace having peace with God, is actually being alienated from God. And so what this leads to is that perhaps you're here this morning and you do not have peace with God because you're actually alienated from Him. That perhaps you are running from Him. Perhaps there is unconfessed sin in your life that your conscience is calling attention to and it call highlighting for you so that you would deal with it and take it to Jesus. That this lack of peace in your life is actually meant to prompt you to God because living without peace is awful and miserable. But it's actually because of Jesus that we can have peace with God. Because we have peace with God, the peace of God comes upon us. And this is the second type of peace to briefly consider, the peace of God. And this shift in pronouns is actually important, the peace of God. And we see this in Philippians 4, 7, which I mentioned earlier. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace of God is actually promised to us by Jesus himself. My peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. And the wonderful reality of the gospel is that God is for you. God is for you. This is mentioned over and over and over again. God is not out to get you. God does not hate you. God, you can truly never lose his love or his favor. That God made you his son and daughter. He has called you by his grace. He has adopted you in love. And you cannot lose that. You will never again be alienated from God. You will never again be estranged from God. You will never again be an orphan or lose your wonderful inheritance and promise of eternal life. Let me say it again. God does not hate you. He is not out to get you. The, the, how do you know this? Where did Paul take you, take us in here in Ephesians 2? 
He takes us to the cross. Jesus is our peace. That you do not stand before God on the basis of your moral performance. You do not come before God because you are a good person. God does not let only good people become his family. Isaiah 56 describes God as the God of outcasts. Your moral performance, religiosity, goodness, whatever else you wanted to say, does not earn God's love for you. It does not, your moral performance does not even earn God's blessing for you. You stand before God solely because of Jesus. He is our peace. And if you want to experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, this is where you begin. You begin with Jesus. Jesus is your love. Jesus is your blessing. And because Jesus has died upon the cross for you, that love and blessing is yours. If you want to know peace, you begin with Jesus. If you want to sustain peace in your life, this is where you begin and always return to. Because peace begins with Jesus our peace is sustained by Jesus always. And indeed, my friends, these are difficult truths to hold on to because it seems too good to be true. And I need to tell myself these truths over and over again. Our, because our anxious hearts are real. Our fearful hearts are, are real. And so the opposite of this type of peace, of having peace with God, is anxiety. Anxiety. This is why Paul in Philippians 4 says, do not be anxious about anything. And then he goes and says, because the peace of God is ours. Because what anxiety does within our, in our lives, and there's many different types of anxiety, but at its core, anxiety is asking the question, am I okay? Am I loved? Do I have what I need? Anxiety is always asking these types of questions, but at the core of it, it asks, am I really loved by God? Because if you doubt love, if, if you doubt God's love, that's going to breed insecurity in our hearts, in our lives. So Steve Cuss, he's an expert in chronic anxiety. Uh, he also has a podcast, Managing Leadership Anxiety. But he writes this in his book, that anxiety blocks our awareness of God because it takes our subconscious attention. This means that anxiety can actually be an early detection system that we are depending on something else other than God for our well-being. See, anxiety will tell you and inform you what when you're looking to something other than God for love and security, it is a signal of our idolatry. So what, this is a, one nice thing about our anxiety. It actually helps us name what's going on in our hearts so that when we can name it, that's where when we get to name our idolatry, confess it, to re repent of it, and run to God for our security. Now, there are some things that pass for peace, for fake peace. 
that we need to be aware of as well because this fake peace is also things that we need to uproot from our life in order to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And this is our second point to consider fake peace. And it's important to notice that this is from Jeremiah 8.11. And there are prophets during Jeremiah's time. They are contemporaries, but they're false prophets. They're not God's prophets. They're not God's spokespeople to His people. But Jeremiah 8.11 talks about these false prophets saying this, They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. So these false prophets are, are saying that, hey, we're actually at peace with one another, and that's just a blatant lie. That there are certain things in our lives that pass for peace, but they're actually fake peace. And so while true peace includes the absence of broken things, just because there's an absence of conflict or an absence of broken things does not mean there's peace. The absence of conflict simply means there's an absence of conflict. And we live this. We live this. And we, we, we know what it's like to be conflict avoidant. That we know what it's like to bite our tongue, to hold our words. It could be at family get-togethers, holiday celebrations. It could be on social media. It could be even in a class that you're taking. Or it could be something a friend says in, or a coworker says that we live this that but just because there's an absence of conflict does not mean there is peace because there are many ways that one can avoid conflict so there's this uh, curriculum i believe it was written by jack miller but maybe one of his st- staff at the missions organization called surge but this is what they wrote right on their chapter on peace. There are many ways that one can avoid conflict. Sometimes we peace keep in a passive way, avoiding, withdrawing, denying, covering up. And sometimes we behave more aggressively, controlling, fixing, shaming, intimidating, attacking, or squelching. We can run over and hide from problems with a friend, or we can steamroll over her. But in any case, we're actually not concerned about peace. Because true peace has to do with loving God and loving one another. And so this fake peace of absence of conflict arises from an anti-gospel mentality. Because at this core of it, you are actually ignoring suffering you are ignoring the pain of this world or even the pain in our lives. And this ignorance, this detachment is the anti-gospel. Because what does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say, I don't care. But Jesus will look, looked upon us in our sin. He had compassion on us. He entered into the suffering of our lives to reconcile us to God. So this apathetic, uh, I don't care, this apathetic whatever is contrary to the way of God. Because God does not ignore our pain. God does not ignore our prayers. When God's people were in Egypt crying out to God because they are in physical bondage, God responds. 
when we cry out for deliverance from our sin, God responds. That God so loved the world that he created with real people, real places, with you. He sends his son to enter into the suffering so that we can say, God with us. And because God is with us, because God is for us, we can actually live at peace with one another. And so as Christians, we're called to we're called to be a people of peace. Like so, for example, Jeremiah 29, 7, that we are called to seek the peace of the city. But it's not just an idea, an ideal that we are actually called to pursue. We're actually called to become a people of peace. We're called to become a people of peace because we're called to live at peace with one another. This is the third point of cultivating peace. Romans 12, 18 puts this in very clear terms for us. If possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Live peaceably with all. And once again, you've, you've heard me say this as we've worked our way through the fruit of the Spirit so far of love and joy. But once again, the Christian community should be defined by the fruit of the Spirit. After all, if Jesus is in me and if Jesus is in you, then we need to let his peace out. We need to show his peace off together. And this has to be fundamentally understood about who we are and even about how we function as a people. Because if we see another person primarily as or fundamentally as a a member of the uh, different political party, we're not going to be at peace with one another. We'll have conflict. We'll be avoiding conflict and much more. And so God speaks very powerfully to this, this dynamic that we are called to, to cultivate peace with one another. And God actually will put this in the negative where he points us out. And this is, he point, puts this in the negative all throughout scripture. Proverbs 16 verses 16 through 19 is very clear. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and and one who sows discord among brothers. Even if you would look at the, the Galatians, in Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, in verse 25, it says, don't devour one another. God calls us to cultivate peace. And God hates it when we, as his family, create division in his family. Because that's what sowing discord is. God does not want us to pit each other against one another. God does not want us to bicker with one another. God wants us to live at peace with one another. So how do we cultivate peace? Well, first... As God's children, we need to recognize that Jesus is inside each and every single one of us. We're not enemies with one another, but we are a family together. That you are, you are here and you do not need to impress one another. You're not here to compete with one another. You're not even here to outperform. And as we relate to one another, that we need to acknowledge and Fundamentally, that we're for each other and not against one another. And so when you are a Christian, 
as, at least here in Ironworks, you join a church as a member. And that when you come and you join the church, you are saying to, to the whole church, you're saying publicly that this is your family, that, you, that we are in this together, so let us love and care for one another. That we have leaders in our lives who will speak truthfully, who speak healthy words of correction to our lives, so that we can be more like Jesus. Because this love and this unity that we have is in Christ. This love and unity shapes our community together. Christ is in me. Christ is in you. That's what sets the church apart. This is who we are. And we can never, ever move on from this. We can never lose sight of this. Because Christ is present within us. And we're called to grow in this Christ-likeness. And so it begins by recognizing who we are in Christ together. And so secondly, as we cultivate peace, we, we need to take our sinfulness seriously. We need to take the depth of our sinfulness seriously. For example, Jesus offers the, a proverb in the Sermon of the Mount. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will be able to clearly see the speck out of your brother's eye. If you, as you look at the New Testament, as the entire Bible, in fact, there's, there is conflict in the life of the church. And so, but what Jesus is calling us to is to, uh, to, re, uh, to examine our own hearts so that our judgments can be accurate and true in his word. And because as we, we're, there's this call for us to speak into each other's lives as well. But before, so fundamentally, the second thing to recognize is that humility is essential for peace. And so the third thing the, is this practice of speaking healthy correction into our lives together. Paul says that we are called to speak truth in love, speaking truth in love to one another. And see, our growth always includes healthy correction. Think about that. Every single time that you've had this catalyst for growth in your life, did it, how did it begin? Was it healthy correction from, from a loved one, from a parent, from a mentor, from a pastor, a leader, a fellow church member? See, our growth always includes healthy correction. It could even just be from the Holy Spirit and reading God's Word. We need healthy correction, and this healthy correction says that, it says this, that I love you, but you are not acting like yourself in a way that honors Jesus or loves Jesus. So let me remind you of whom God made you to be and whom Jesus makes you be. See, that's what Jesus, that, that's what speaking healthy correction into our lives looks like. We are saying that you are not living as the new you in Jesus, that you are actually acting as the old you in sin. And so, friends, the church is a gift to cultivating peace together. Ephesians makes this very clear, that Jesus, he himself is our, own, our peace, who has made us both one and broken down. 
He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That Jesus is our peace. He has made us one with one another. Christ in me, Christ in you. He lives inside of everyone who looks to him in faith. And as an expression of that, we commit to being a people of peace with one another. And that's a commitment that we take because Jesus has, made a, has given us peace with God. Let's pray.